we're going to title this episode, You're Fat No Matter What You Do. So some people are going to be already triggered by the time we're 30 seconds into this. But I'm going to take a big old, like, pry bar and open up your brain. Welcome to Wellness Unplugged, where we disconnect the fake glitz of social media and get real about creating that transformation you've been wanting for far too long. You'll hear real and raw conversations with experts in nutrition, fitness, health, and psychology. We're not here to dish the latest overpriced supplement, miracle cure, or fad diet. There's enough shows like that. We're all about science. This is a journey to be walked one step at a time. We'll get healthier together by simplifying nutrition, building on our previous successes, and changing habits, behaviors, and mindset just a little bit every day. So if you're ready to confront your challenges head on and get back to feeling like you're in control of your life again, then you're in the right place. Now, your host of Wellness Unplugged, down over 100 pounds, and is still on a mission to help you leave BS diets in the rear view mirror forever. Coach John McLernan. Welcome back for another episode of Wellness Unplugged. Like always, it's very cliche, but I'm excited about the guests I have on today because they're awesome and your brain's going to melt by the end of this episode because they have so many witty things to say. Um, so without further ado, with that ostentatious introduction, I'd like to introduce Chris Wilkins and Elizabeth. I didn't actually get the correct pronunciation of your last name. I want to say, like, is it Hefner? It's Hefner, just like Hugh. <laughs> there we go. Chris Wilkins, Elizabeth Hefner. And we're going we're gonna to title this episode, You're Fat No Matter What You Do. So some people are going to be already triggered by the time we're 30 seconds into this. Um, but this is everything that sucks about the weight loss industry. So Chris, I'll, I'll let you jump in and say, why are we having this conversation today? And, and oh, how'd you get here? Wow. Okay. That's quite an intro. So yeah. I know you said right before we started recording that like intros weren't your thing, but I, I disagree. So oh, me quick, too. <laughs> just a quick <laughs> background on me and, and Liz or Elizabeth, as she's also known. Um, I'm a personal trainer with a specialty in nutrition coaching and most of my current business is in nutrition coaching. And I've been doing that for a long time. Um, but I also have a background in cross-cultural training and anthropology. And so a lot of those things kind of frame my coaching process, I think. And I think that's the best way to, what's the word I want? To understand what it would be like to coach with me is that I'm going to take a big old like pry bar and open up your brain and we're going to figure out what your framework is and how that's helping you and how it's not and how you want to change it. And so that's what Liz came to me for. Actually, we met really randomly um, through her sister. Um, okay. And I met her sister through another trainer I knew and her sister was very late to a dinner date and Liz was sitting in the restaurant by herself. And I could tell that that's who I was supposed to be meeting, but we didn't actually know each other yet. And I sat down, I just walked over and I was like, hello, I think I'm the person that your sister is expecting you to meet today. <laughs> and she was like, okay. And then like within 10 minutes, I thought to myself, this is a person I want to know for a long time. She's really awesome. And then through knowing each other and hanging out, Liz is also a certified personal trainer, which she doesn't mention very often. Yeah. Um, but she's got her own weight loss and health journey. That's really, really important. And I think can help a lot of people. And so we decided to start our podcast based off of Liz's journey through health and fitness. Now, did you guys, gals, sorry, I just used guys as a generic catch-all and I probably shouldn't, but. You're misogynist. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's colloquial. It's like, right. Did, did you humans meet each other in Los Angeles? Is that right? We did. Okay. Yeah. Good old has, LA. 
that has to be the capital city of like everything that's wrong with weight loss. Yes, it is. It is it's also the capital city of do you love being triggered and feeling like you are never good enough ever? Okay. So both Liz and I, neither of us are from LA. Let's right. just say that. Right. So I grew up in rural Massachusetts. Elizabeth, where'd you grow up? R- rural California. Right. Okay. So moving <laughs> to LA, you know, I think LA is the best sales job ever perpetrated by a city upon the rest of the world. Okay. Um, and, you know, quite literally, when you look at Hollywood, that's what it is. They're selling you a very specific thing and they decide what it is. And then the reality of living in LA and the reality of what it takes to get those things or to have the stuff that they say you should have is, is really, really different. You know, I was there for just about 10 years. How long were you there, Liz? Uh, Longer, yeah. Well, like, no. Well, wait, when did I move? About nine years. Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the first day you get to LA, you're like, yes, this is amazing. I can't believe I'm here. The Whatever. Or were you I hated like- it immediately. I hated it immediately. I was there. I was living with my grandmother. I had left the college I was at because I had a really bad experience in the program. I was living with my grandmother. Um, she was taking care of me. I was taking care of her. It was like mutually beneficial. It was great. Um, and I immediately, it's so funny. I've told Chris, like, well, as soon as I moved to LA, I used to dress super colorfully. I just, I wanted to always look like a maiden, like a, like in a, in a fairy tale. I just loved wearing like pastels and like pretty colorful things. As soon as I moved to LA within months, I started wearing all black because I, I, I found out later that I think it was um, just this weird, like protective thing. I felt so incredibly uncomfortable and unsafe there and in my body. And I was trying to hide and being like, Oh my God, I'm so uncomfortable here. Mm. Wow. It was, a, it was a really unpleasant transition for her. And I mean, I would say it was less of an unpleasant transition for me because I was, well, I was living in the Czech Republic before that. And before living in the Czech Republic, I was in France. So I'd been in Europe for 10 years and I had purposefully left America when I got out of college because I really wanted to not only explore the world and like speak a bunch of languages. I think that's super cool. Yeah, totally. um, but I also didn't really agree with how I felt American society treated people. I wanted to see if there was something different. And I found that there really was. And that, you know, you didn't have to go through life afraid for your safety. And I mean that from the point of view of your health care. And, you know, if, some, if you have an accident that's not health related, you know, there were safety systems in place. And I thought that was really excellent. And I was very wary to come back to the U.S. after 10 years of living abroad. No kidding. Because I thought I've, I've worked really hard on building all of these new paradigms for how I want my life to be. And I don't want to get sucked back into it. And I felt like my first couple of years in LA, I did a pretty good job. And then when I got back into the industry and into working and and into personal training, I just feel like it was a huge tidal wave of pressure and expectation and achievement that kind of slapped me and dragged me along. And I think I'm still trying to get away from that because the pressure to do something amazing all the time in LA and be amazing and look amazing and smell amazing and talk about amazing things is ever (laughs) present. And if you're ever sitting still, you're a fucking loser. Oh yeah. That's the thing. That's the thing where it's like the glorification of busy, like the more busy you are, the more you're winning at life, even if it's all empty, even totally. And I think this is why the title of this episode is you're fat no matter what you do, because if you ever did manage to succeed at any of the things LA tells you that you should be, you'd get to stop and they don't want that. 
you know, right. I think they like it's ominous or something. There's no like the conspiratorial the thing. entity of LA, the city of lost angels. It's just yeah. the collective behavior of the people in the city, right? That propels everybody around them to do the same thing. And you can't, you can't escape that. That's literally what creates culture, right? Is group behavior. So when you look at it from that perspective, it's a bunch of people who are somewhat like-minded living in a place where they can do things that they think are important and trying to go against that culture, no matter where that is, is really, really challenging. So maybe you could say it's, it's a sense of like, you're always going to suck when you, you know, you're compared to this standard that will never exist in reality. Right. And if you look at where, like, what should you look like comes from predominantly in America, what you should look like comes out of LA. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think this is why maybe it was misleading that we started with that, that topic and then immediately dove into why we thought LA sucked. But I think that's actually the beginning of the story is where does all this marketing that we see come from? And it comes predominantly from LA. Right. Where you have this idea of this is what you're supposed to look like. Like I'm supposed to look like huge jacked man, you know, um, and you say Hugh Jackman or huge jacked man. I know. Cause that was either. That was great. I was like, that was really good. I love that. <laughs> or my brain just heard of Hugh Jackman because he's beautiful. I don't know which one. That like he's, he is. And he's Australian and I'm married to an Australian who's actually met him in real life. Not that her life was any different after meeting him. Like I think right. that's, that's another total myth. Like you meet a celebrity and some of your yeah. life's going to be different. I'm like, they don't care that I exist five seconds after we part ways. Yeah. It might even be three seconds, you know? Like that's, that's the life of, of, of living in a celebrity fishbowl. Yes. Um, but yeah. It's actually so, super awkward when people feel like they know you and you don't know them, you know, because <laughs> they know so much more about you and they yeah. come up and they say all this stuff about you and you're like, cool. Hi. I've never achieved that level of fame, but hopefully with this podcast, I will. Yeah. Right. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Big. Yeah. Um, so then you start out with this sort of imprint of this is what you're supposed to look like. And, uh, Liz, you're, you're fairly tall. Are you not? Yeah. Just, well, I'm just, okay. If I were a guy, I would not be tall. I would not be that tall, but as a woman, because I'm just under six feet, I'm like five, 11 and a half. But for some reason, people are like, you're huge. You're just like, Oh my God. I'm like, is that really that tall? I guess it in LA. I'm sorry. Everyone's freaking short in LA. So everything's about camera angles. Yeah. And in Italy, yeah. Oh my God. No, all the actors, like all, all the men are lying and saying that they're like three inches taller than they are. And all the women are, are saying that they're three inches shorter than they are. It's mm-hmm. really, it's really, funny. if you look at any, the only, the only celebrity, since we're on this topic, the only celebrity who is honest about their height, if you look them up on for like Wikipedia or something, is Danny DeVito. I'm sure you're Everyone else, who? I was sure you were going to say Hugh Jackman. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. Um, but every, uh, every like celebrity you'll look it up, you'll be like Tom Cruise. It'll be like five, <laughs> nine or something. That, he's five, six. I'm just going to say On a it. good day with like platforms. On a good day. Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, it's really funny. It's well, I mean, I remember the first time even that I met Ronnie Coleman, who he's not necessarily from LA, but he's a eight time Mr. Olympia winner as a, as a bodybuilder. And there's this idea that this guy is this enormous, larger than life human. And I stood beside him and he didn't come up to my shoulder. And I was like, how tall are you? Uh, six one. Uh, I mean, okay, maybe he can, maybe I'm, I'm, you know, remembering the story a little bit, you know, but I was just like, you know, like you're pretty, Did you lean. Put, like your coffee on his head where you like, yeah, Oh, <laughs> like, I was like, well, you know, like you're pretty lean and muscular. I can see that. Like I see you have muscle, but you're nowhere near as huge as the photos portrayed you to be in the mag, the glossy like magazines 
I was like, oh, you're I, not. Yeah. I think this is a really good place to start talking about where these standards come from and what the reality looks like. Because when I got into fitness in LA, I had all of these expectations about what I was going to find and these people were going to have all these answers. And I was going to immediately transform into this super amazingly fit person. And, you know, looking back on that, I was actually pretty fit when I started. Yep. And I didn't get a crap ton fitter from hanging out with these people or anything. If I, if anything, I learned that they all had some really, really interesting and not particularly healthy relationships with food. Um, yeah. And that the advice that they were giving was in a lot of cases, very cold and very much like put up or shut up yeah. to their clients. And, and that really shocked me coming from a teaching background. I was teaching languages to adults who had, more or less failed to make it through the school system adequately and learn English. And so like, and I think you've had some experience with I this have. too. So, you know, you're, you're dealing with this incredibly vulnerable part of a person's personality is their ability to communicate. Right. And the last thing you can afford to do is tell them to put up or shut up. You know, you've, you've got yeah. to use compassion and empathy and, and get them comfortable to talk. And so I went from that industry to personal training where it was like, well, if you didn't show up five days a week, you're fired because you suck as a client. Wow. And that was really eye-opening for me. That's not what I expected. Um, and then from there, it, was, it wasn't very long before I started meeting a lot of these people who you, know, you see on Instagram and in magazines because I'm in LA, right? Like yeah. they're around and they're bouncing around from gym to gym. They don't stay in one gym very long usually because they don't work there. And at the time, a decade ago in gyms, if you were not a gym paid personal trainer, you were not welcome to train in the gym, right? Cause it's a huge okay. liability for the gym. Um, if you hurt somebody and you were in a 24 hour fitness, for example, and you were not a 24 hour fitness employee that could close this, that could close a 24 down. Right. Okay. You know, so there was a lot of pressure to not train, um, in gyms <laughs> if you didn't work for them. So that was an interesting dynamic. And what I learned from this was like all of these bodybuilders didn't look like bodybuilders, particularly on any given day, mm -hmm. only three to four months of the year would they look super cut. Yeah. Right. You did gym monsters. There were just guys who were just jacked, but they'd been lifting for like 20 years and, you know, old school bro style. Nobody's sure, talking sure. about how healthy they were, but they were jacked. Right. right. So there's this, there's this pressure and, you know, every magazine headline, like for men's health magazines is like arms and abs, arms and abs and pecs, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, um, and then the backlash to that was don't skip leg day. Cause we got all these guys with chicken legs running around <laughs> because all they had was chest and <laughs> chest yeah. and back, you know, binds and tries and that was it. And then it's like, Oh and now yeah, it's, I have to do abs. Right. And now it's women just doing, but just do your butt. You want skinny little chicken, like, like, Kim Kardashian, chicken legs, but with a big butt. Which is like it, it, it's it's just unrealistic standards for the majority of human beings, <laughs> never mind women. Yeah. Okay. Like this is just not what human beings are naturally shaped like. And so you get this kind of false paradigm for what fitness looks like. Yeah. Because it, the it, other thing I'll say, the other myth I really want to debunk is that those people on that end of the extreme who are super lean and super buff. They're not healthy either. That's not healthy. That's one end of an extreme. That's, that's like you're forcing your body basically into starvation while using um, extra hormones to help your body cling to muscle to fight off what would normally be the starvation response to get there. Exactly. 
we're just we're we're trying to force our bodies into something that is impossible because we're taking these genetic outliers and pretending somehow that they're the normal and everyone's expectations of what you're supposed to look like is is distorted and compared to a photo shoot ready fitness model whether male or female you're fat you know yes. and it's just it's just absurd like i i'm not a fitness model i will never be i know i'm not it's not even on my radar for wanting to be um i want to be able to play with my kid <laughs> like, right that's, and when that's, you actually, when you actually coach people, these are the goals people give you. They don't, yeah. I mean, a lot of times, and I did have people in LA who came in and said, you know, I want to look like this or this person, or, you know, make me have this audacious booty. And that's all I care about. But it was, you know, then it was as our responsibility as qualified personal trainers who had actual background in some science and some knowledge and some physiology. It was our job to have the conversation and say, okay, like, is this really what you want? Because if this is what you want, here are the things you're going to have to do to get there. And you're going to have to do them for a long time and it's going to suck. And that's really unsexy. And I think that's where um, this becomes so dangerous. This is why they're really playing off of this desire to look a certain way. And they're playing that up with camera angles and lighting and spray can and, you know, really glossing over the, the grittier side of getting those bodies. Yeah. Where where it's basically impossible to maintain. Yeah. Uh, Because even look, uh, Oprah, uh, probably the wealthiest, most powerful female, I don't know if in the world, but at least in in the U S especially in in the media industry, if there was ever a secret, she was going to figure it out. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. If there was a shortcut, she was going to figure it out. And I think this is what's so interesting is because she's kind of come to a place, it seems, where she's just reconciled herself with this is how I want to live. And this is what I look like because of how I choose to live. And I'm fine with that. That right there, man, that's that's actually really powerful. Coming to the place where reconcile, this is how I want to live. Therefore, this is how I'm going to look as a result of my choices. And I'm okay with that. I wrote down the, the phrase happiness lie. Because yeah. at, at the heart of all of this is this lie that if you look this way, you will be happy. And I know in my own struggles, I struggle with binge eating and food addiction. And I bought into the lie that if I looked a certain way, that somehow I wouldn't, I'd stop hating myself. Yeah. And I, yeah. I definitely bought that as well. You know, I, I got down to around 13% body fat for a little while, which for a female is like pretty dangerously low. That, that's, and yeah. I was still not happy with that. I was convinced I could do better. I was convinced I could be leaner and look better. And I was ignoring all of the symptoms that I was experiencing. I was irritable. I was losing hair. I was definitely having digestive issues that I wasn't paying attention to. Um, And it actually came down to a bag of carrots that kind of changed my, my life. And my husband, who at the time was not my husband yet. And I tell the story all the time. He's actually just walked out of his office and is going to have to listen to me say this again for like 15 millionth time in 15 years. But he, I was cooking dinner and I'd run out of what I considered to be vegetables at the time. And I sent him to the store and he's English and has a perfectly normal relationship with food compared to everything I was doing. Um, and he came back with carrots and I absolutely lost my shit at him. And I was like, how can you think these are a vegetable? Don't you know how many carbohydrates they have? And he was like, okay, look, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. Tough love yeah. Talk time. Like what's your, what you're doing here is not normal. And I was like, that's insane. You're crazy. You know, other people suck. It's not me. Um, all of this narrative that had been really pounded into me by the fitness industry and the magazines that I was reading and all of this advertising that I was consuming, telling me that I was literally never going to be thin enough. 
I was never going to be not fat. Never. And he really pivotally changed the course of my life with that conversation because nobody else had ever pointed it out before. Nobody else was willing to say, Hey, Hey, maybe this isn't normal. And like, you shouldn't be just pissed off if you miss dinner by five minutes. That's not reasonable. Yeah. So, uh, I, I, off, off the record, I think we touched on, uh, both Liz and yourself, Chris have had a bit of a dance with anorexia. How, do, how do you, how do you get to a place? And if, if you feel comfortable sharing, how do you get to the place where you feel like that's an appropriate course of behavior? And is there a part of your brain that goes, I probably shouldn't do this, or this doesn't make sense, but you do it anyways. Like where, where are you at in, in that place, in that space? You want to go first, Liz, or do you want me to go? Sure. Um, <laughs> So for me, it was like when it struck when I was 15 and then went on for like a year and a half. And during that time, I lost a hundred pounds. Um, I, I literally just took this 1200 calorie thing where I found in an old book, uh, an old like recipe book about how to lose weight. And it's like, you want to eat under, you want to eat 1200 calories. So I just did that for like a year and lost 100 pounds um like i would pass i eventually started just pass like having episodes where i'd pass out every other day and i stopped having my period for like a year and um what was so great about this experience besides how sick i felt and how sick i was everyone was coming to me and just saying you look so great People who had previously fat shamed me and made me feel like absolute shit about myself and my body, like other teenage girls, mostly, um, and even grown women, um, were coming to me and being like, how do you do this? Will you teach me how to exercise? Will you teach me how to do a proper crunch? Will you teach me how, wow, like, you know, all of a sudden going from like being horribly shamed and being ostracized from actual like events, um, to all of a sudden people coming to you will be like, please teach me the way Messiah. Um, Which is still painful because I still hold on to that being like, wow, that was, that felt really, really reassuring. It felt really reassuring. And even now, as I sit here, I know I'm going to have feelings later today where it's like, if I can, if I can like get to this certain image, if I can get to this certain weight or look, Um, all my past, all my past experiences that were hurtful and quote unquote, holding me back in my life will no longer matter. And so it's still like, definitely, it's not like, Oh, I've really healed from this. And I'm really a completely like different person. It's really like, no, this still happens every single day. But then I have a much, a, a strong side. That's kind of like, Hey, that seems kind of crazy. And don't forget reality and don't forget you can also recognize i'm going to bring it up because the matrix the new matrix is coming out it's like you gotta you gotta what swallow that red pill and you gotta open your eyes to all this absolute fake bullshit that's out there that's telling you all this what was what was the moment for you where you realized it was something that was doing you harm because you were getting all this well the doctor the doctor threatened to hospitalize me if I didn't, and the doctor didn't give me any guidance, the doctor, I was like, oh, no, I eat 1200 calories a day. That's what I do. And the doctor's like, you have to eat 2000 calories a day with no guidance, no help, no, like, let's work up to that. Let's talk about what you're eating. 
Um, so then I just gained, I gained my weight back so fast and it was so painful. I had worked so hard, you know, um, but I started so myself. Long. Yeah. Suffered for so long only to have gained. So I gained my way back so fast. That, um, that, that was, will mess with your head. Oh, yeah. yeah. Speaking from personal and, experience. Yeah. Cause it's just, I just feel, I still feel angry. I still feel super angry about it because I don't feel like I'm at, I don't feel like I'm at, um, you know, I don't feel like I'm at a comfortable weight for myself. Um, who are you angry like, at? What? Who are you angry at? I'm angry at the doctor. Uh-huh. I'm frankly like, bitch, <laughs> you do not tell someone who's going from 1200 calories a day to all of a sudden just start eating 2000 calories. with No guidance at all. I'm sorry. I'm like, I'm sure the doctor, <laughs> the doctor was trying to put the fear of God in me. Um, and she started talking about how I was going to get osteoporosis and all these really, really scary things. And I'm just like, I don't want all that. Oh my God. You know, yeah. <laughs> I'm just angry at the, that, um, I'm, I guess, especially I'm angry at the people who patted me on the back and said, you look so great. Good for you. Wow. You've really turned your life around or something like it wasn't yeah. quite that dramatic, but that's very much how it felt. I remember like the friend who who previously fat shamed me came to me and asked for workout advice and everything. And once her brother, I guess had like her brother had come home for a visit from college and he had like called me fat and like said, you know, mean things about me. And she came to me once. And when I was like in the height of anorexia, I was like working out and she came to me and she's like, my good, good news. My brother said, you're not fat anymore. And I lost it because he was kind of chunky and I lost it. And I was like, he should look in the mirror. Wow. <laughs> and I just like lost it because I just knew that that was such bullshit. Like good. And especially, I yeah. mean, especially being a woman, like good job. A man says you're attractive or something, you know? <laughs> and I'm sorry. I know he didn't say I was attractive. He just said I wasn't fat. But in my head, I was like, that means yeah. I'm worthy. But that actually <laughs> is a really, really tight bond in in society is thin equals attractive. And so yeah. even yeah. if you didn't use that word, that's essentially what you heard because that's how that was framed, especially. Yeah. And he was an adult. Time. I think, right. you know, he was an adult and I was still like, I was like 15, 16. He should not yeah. be commenting on my body. Right. Let's yeah. yeah. talk about how inappropriate that yeah. is in today's terms, right? Yeah. Holy <laughs> shit. That's like, ugh. So can I, can I shine a light on two things here? Um, one, I appreciate you, you open up and being vulnerable and sharing this because it, it, in one sense, it helps people understand that this experience, um, one, is not isolated. Um, and two, it's, there's a common human struggle here, and there isn't a shame. There shouldn't be a sense of shame connected to the fact that you have these struggles. And three, uh, this might have been a number of years down the road, but it still has an effect on you. And it's important to, because some people will think, like, why am I not over this? Because like, it was burned into your brain at a very impressionable age. And you don't, these aren't things you just kind of get over. Um, no, I still have a vendetta, frankly. I feel like I have this vendetta. I'm like, I'll show them. I'll show yeah. them. I'll bench press them. I'll show them. <laughs> and this is actually one of the things I wanted to point out, having worked with Liz for so long, is that yeah. this transition to being angry at other people 
is such a massive, massive transition in an eating disorder framework because she's not mad at herself or her body for her body not living up to what she expects it to be. She didn't say that. And that's actually, I, oh. I sort of set that question up on purpose just to see what she was going to say because I haven't asked her anything about that recently. <laughs> but I'm feeling um, <laughs> when you have an eating disorder is you're angry at your body because it's not doing what you think it should be doing, right? It's not behaving yeah. the way you think it should be. Um, and so very, very commonly eating disorders are about control. Yeah. I mean, I, I had this horrible relationship with my body too. And I remember just like trying to punish it into submission and just like spiting my body yeah. and hating it because it wouldn't do what I was trying to force it to do. Yeah. That's actually where my anorexia started was I had no nutrition knowledge. I had no control over what was going in my mouth. 50% of the time I was a kid as well. I was quite young, like Liz, you know, I was 14 or 15 coming through that really, really challenging time of your body changing as a female and all of this social pressure starting up. And I was in sports um, and I was still overweight despite being in sports. And I just got so fed up with what I felt like was my body betraying who I really was. I was so angry at my body for being such a pile of crap that it was going to be overweight. And I didn't think I was doing anything wrong. And so I decided to punish it. That was absolutely how my anorexia started was I was going to take control and show my body who was boss. And so I didn't go find a plan. I didn't do any of that. I just stopped eating. And I wow. was extra clever because I made sure that nobody else knew I was doing it. So I would eat in front of other people and starve every other moment. So for example, like my mom didn't notice whether or not I ate breakfast in the morning. So I didn't eat breakfast and I would eat like a tiny, tiny thing at lunch, like the tiniest thing I could find at lunch in high school. And then I would go and play soccer for two hours in the afternoon and come home and I would eat dinner. And so my mom never suspected anything. And so the same thing sort of happened because over the years, I've now learned a lot of where my conflict with how I looked came from my mom. And I didn't really realize that because she's always been very thin and small and petite and also ruthlessly critical of her own body. And so for me, I was letting her down by looking the way that I did. And she was always ashamed of, of me being overweight. And, you know, I can remember getting taken to special pant shops because they didn't make pants for people my height because I was short and wide. And at the time in the mid 90s, those people didn't have a lot of clothing options. And so there was this special, really sketchy shop I used to get taken to to buy my jeans every year. And all of this shame was piling up, just all of this shame piling up. And then when people started complimenting all of my weight loss, I lost 50 pounds yeah. in three and a half months. Um, and I came back, I remember I came back my junior year of high school to school and people didn't recognize me. And the praise that was heaped on me for what I had done is like this incredible mental glue for habits, right? Like, it's like, I've done this yeah. terrible thing. And in my mind, I know that I'm not doing myself any favors here, but boy, am I getting rewarded for it. And so it was yeah. really, really traumatic to think, well, what do I do next? Because I can't never eat again. And I'm getting really hungry and this is getting harder. And, you know, how am I going to continue on from here? And then I had a very similar experience. Only my mom um, moved to Utah I was in rural Massachusetts and my mom moved to Utah and she insisted that I come. And so she, I moved in my senior year of high school and that triggered my first binge episode because I was so angry. The only way I could cope was food. And so now I undid all of the quote unquote progress I felt I had made. And then yeah. the shame spiral started. Right. So <laughs> I think the commonalities are interesting between yeah. our stories. That and, and, I think we were, we were joking about, um, bet you can't just have just one. Uh, and we were saying in a lighthearted way, but really, um, like these are serious things. 
Yeah. Very rarely is an eating disorder like do you just have like sort of one specific condition? We we move from one to another, and and a common one, especially in the fitness and bodybuilding world, it would be um, orthorexia and maybe along with body dysmorphia. You know, and really about trying to control one way or another, shifting one form of control to another form of control, and maybe calorie counting and macro counting, for example. Like I was a spreadsheet tracker. I had an in body five twenty. I would weigh myself every day. I'd go and, you know, have a bowel movement and go and weigh myself again, or I'd take a leak and, and just see how my like lean body mass changed. And I I figured out these graph projections. If I was to lose 1% of my body weight at this rate here, this is when I should reach this goal weight as long as I eat these. Like it was insanity, really. Like how was I ever going to get there, you know, doing that? And so I don't know if, if either of you transitioned into kind of that type of orthorexia where it was, you know, maybe you weren't starving yourself, but there was still really kind of this obsessive or even this fear of food. For me, I um, I had this like love-hate relationship with food because on the one hand, it was it was like masking my my pain and my trauma. So it was my medication. On the other hand, it was keeping me or making me fat. And so I, I then turned into basically the garburator and that became my nickname. <laughs> wow. Who nicknamed you that? Uh, some very kind friends. Some kind friends. Yeah. <laughs> They sound kind. I think this yeah. is. I, I think this goes back to what we were talking about about this external pressure too. Of you know, you you can't isolate yourself from your social environment under yeah. these conditions. And unfortunately, you know, this is what is has been for a very long time. Anyway, I think it is potentially changing now. But it was incredibly shameful to be overweight, no matter what the reason was. Yeah. You know, it didn't matter why you you were carrying extra weight. I mean, I look back at some early 80s movies, I've been watching some of them with my 11-year-old, and it's real cringy. I mean, <laughs> not just the fat shaming stuff, but also just the, the really intense misogyny and just some of the things that we just all thought were completely normal at the time. And this, this is normal, right? You know, cultures evolve and they change and they adapt and they learn from their mistakes, just like individual humans do. Um, but I think the really, really hard thing to transition and to make lasting change happen for yourself is in the face of this social pressure going the other way is to be able to do that anyway. And I think this is one of the reasons we decided to record these podcasts, right? Is to, to try to turn up this sound of like, Hey, we are all suffering in this way. This is actually quite common. And, you know, there's kind of a pattern here that we can establish. And maybe if you can see the pattern, you can start to gain some more real control of it rather than that, the fake control of eating disorder, you know, or diet culture control. Yeah. If those are fake. Noticing patterns. Control. Noticing patterns, Chris. That is yeah. like, that is really what you, you what you've helped me with. Um, because I noticed so many times I'm going down the same freaking rabbit hole, the same one. And I'm like, well, where has that led to the past? And I'm like, nowhere good or just nowhere. Or pro- I mean, it's usually just down a shame spiral. Um, and, and <laughs> it just saves me a lot of time and energy, but yeah. then it, I still, I'll find myself kind of at the crossroads, like, well, if I'm not going to go down here, then what am I going to do? Because it's frustrating. Cause I'm like, I want to do something like, I want to do something extreme right now to change my life, Enter <laughs> you know, cause diet. I'm not happy. <laughs> Enter every diet that's ever been created because that feeling yeah. right there that you just vocalized, that is exactly what they're looking for. Yeah for you to buy whatever it is they're selling. And, you know, we, before we started recording, we kind of categorized some of the different angles 
that the media and the marketing people come at you with to try to get you to change your body that aren't really doing the hard work of noticing and naming those patterns and making consistent choices against those patterns, you know, and taking different action because that's, you know, you can listen to either more of John's podcast or all of our podcasts. And pretty much every episode is about how do you create positive action? How do you create actions that take you where you want to go and not where you don't? So I don't want to spend too much time doing that, but we did kind of break it down into, you know, there's ways that they're marketing where you can affect your physical person right now. Things like cool sculpting here will freeze your fat cells and they'll just disappear and then you'll be awesome and happy and everything will be perfect. Or you can do the fascia blaster. I hope somebody remembers the fascia blaster. <laughs> that's I mean, like one of my personal favorites. <laughs> what, a, what a catchy name. But right? th- think about cryo-freeze. Yeah. So the, the idea behind cryo-freeze is that you freeze your fat cells and they die. And I wonder, like, do the rest, do other cells freeze and die in the process? Do you and actually, you like, right. Do you actually like freeze fat. some, because it's maybe I, I, like probably your skin cells. So are you going to have some like rotting skin flesh on you? <laughs> like what, what happens long-term if you, if you do something like this? Yeah, because it's not I like, mean, yeah. I think if you look at the layers of, you know, dermis and then epidermis and then subcutaneous fat, and you look actually at how your, your, your body layers its protection of you, right? Because that's what your skin and your fat is. It's basically layers of, of protection for you, which is a nice positive way to talk about fat, right? It's like, it's protection. Well protected. Yes. I'm very well protected. So you look at that, like how exactly are they making just your fat cells cold? Right? Mm. Without making all of your skin cold and without causing any, I really don't understand how that works exactly. And it's funny because one of the gyms in LA where I worked had one of those cryo chambers it's because it's supposed to also be like amazing for recovery and i tried it once and it was i really hate being cold just to preface my response this this is a personal thing this has nothing to do with whether or not there's science behind this but like i really hate being cold and you basically have to get naked and you get into like i remember the kid i got in with he was like it's like saturn this this is the exact temperature of saturn i was like well fuck saturn i don't want to go there (laughs) this is terrible my eyeballs are cold and like my, I had my contacts in and I felt like my contacts were actively freezing. So I closed my eyes and they warn you, don't touch the side or you like stick to it and you'll do yourself damage. But you also have to bounce around. So I'm like bouncing around with my eyes closed just with this other like 20 something year old kid in there, like pumping me up, telling me how awesome it was. And I knocked into him and I almost knocked him into the wall. And I'm like, we're going to die. Get, let's just get out now. But this is an incredibly popular thing in LA. People actively reserve time in advance these places are full people actively reserve cryotherapy sessions well, liz, but didn't liz, you just oh sorry go ahead john well, well liz you you said it i want to do something extreme to i want to say no yeah. because i feel okay therapy moment i feel like if i'm not happy with where i'm at if i'm not doing something then i'm a then i'm a real loser like i'm a lazy sad loser so not to <laughs> plug Dr. Berardi's podcast on this podcast, but I did listen to it today. And he we can hashtag it. So it's good. Go ahead. Yeah. He had this whole episode, the third episode of this current series where he had this Buddhist psychotherapist guy talking and it was fantastic because he's really talking about how in Buddhism, like the now is really important. Right. And we oftentimes sacrifice our happiness in the future for our happiness now and the discomfort of being unhappy now is like impossible to ignore. 
So we make bad decisions, right, basically. And if we can sort of get to a place where we're accepting of where we are now, we're accepting of what is now, that allows us the space and the time to make better decisions for our future selves as well. But we get it backwards mm -hmm. so often. And so this is, I think, another thing that the, the diet industry plays off of is this pain factor. I want out of discomfort now. Right. Yeah. I'm in discomfort now. That is why we have Tinder. That's why we have Tinder. That's why we have Tinder. It just occurred to me because, you know, like, Ooh. you know, when I was online dating every and this happens to more. This has happened to many other women I talked to, like around Thanksgiving and Christmas, all the guys come out of the woodwork. And they're just like, I'm, they don't say this, but basically they're like, I'm really sad and lonely and uncomfortable. I need a booty call. <laughs> because it's an immediate, you know, it's an immediate yeah. hormonal gratification thing. And I mean that on like yeah. all levels, isn't it? It's like, somebody wants to pay attention to me. Somebody is going to physically interact with me, right? Somebody thinks I'm valuable. All these external cues for, you know, feeling good that are immediately achievable are really hard to resist. They're really hard to resist. And we think about the, even going back to LA and sort of the gloss of like, if you're not happy and beautiful, something is wrong with you. You. Yeah. When life, life is hard and life is uncomfortable and we, we are going to feel pain. That's and if we. very un-American of you, John. And I think that's actually. Yeah, John, way to be a Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you're in America, we suffer. Right. But I think and I'm married to a Brit. So that's why I feel comfortable saying that is because I'm aware that other Anglophone cultures do not have this, this absolute dire need to be positive about everything all the time. I mean, the British yeah. stick up her lip is famous, but I, I literally live with a man whose pretty much outlook on everything is like, well, yep, that's what happened. You know, and it's actually really freeing. It seems like yeah. that would suck, but it's it's really freeing because you you relieve yourself of the expectation of everything being awesome all the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, social media has been like the worst oh. for this. It has absolutely distorted people's ideas of what reality looks like. It's worse than reality TV shows. Yeah. And even the awareness of it doesn't change the fact that it still affects us at like a deeper emotional level when we consume this content. I mean, I don't, I'm not that active on Instagram. I have an Instagram account. I have followers, but I'm like, what, what am I going to put up there? I'm not going to wear a pair of Gymshark pants and flash my bum because like nobody wants to see a 40 year old male bum who's, you know, well, maybe, maybe that somebody. Is, that is demonstrably untrue. Okay. I bet you we could find out otherwise if we put you in the right. If that were true, then The Rock wouldn't have such a popular Instagram. Just saying. Fair. And by The Rock, I mean Dwayne Johnson. But right. I think this is, this is sorry, the echo sorry, chamber Rock. Yeah. Sorry, this is the echo chamber thing. You can create a, you can curate an environment right. where everything you do, you're told you're awesome for it. And I see this on TikTok yeah. all the time where people are like, hey, if you're going to leave these nasty comments and they'll post a comment up and they'll point it at them, just, just leave, just leave. I don't need to hear you. And it's like, there's two sides to that, I think. It's like, okay, if you are going to make a nasty comment, there's a way to be productive and to productively comment on somebody's post. So we don't need trolls. But mm -hmm. also silencing dissent is a pretty sketchy fascist thing to do if we're really going to be honest about it. Like, that's not the way we grow as people is by just being like, if you don't think that everything I do is awesome, then there's the door. I mean, that's yeah, <laughs> that's pretty problematic. So, OK, I, I, I want to shift gears here for a sec, because, um, you know, you both are providing really, really interesting perspectives. And in once like I, I, I grew up a male um, in Canada. Where, where life is like not that 
um, difficult. I mean, kids were mean to me. They bullied me because I was I was smart, but then I grew tall and strong, and they stopped bullying me. Um, and now they bully me because I'm smart and tall and strong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, well, back in the '90s, getting good grades was not a good thing, like because it made you yeah. stand out. You're a nerd. Yes. Yeah, and they would. Oh, they could be vicious, and and then yeah. didn't help that I had glasses and braces. I was like, yes, trifecta. Yeah. Getting good grades with glasses and braces, like they were ruthless. Yeah. And but then I then I you know grew to be like six foot tall when I was like thirteen. <laughs> so that that helped a little bit. But then it was like I want to challenge you to a fight, and uh, you know, but uh, you know, going into adulthood, like my my life was relatively okay. You know, I didn't I didn't have to. You know, I suffered from the usual sort of teen bullying, but really, it, it didn't it didn't ruin my life in any way. Uh, really. And I kind of just grew into my own. I, I think it developed a type of, of resilience, but I think like the, the, the teen world as, as females is totally different. And it has like this, it leaves this like potentially devastating imprint on you growing up, but it comes at you from both angles. Like girls largely just ignored me. They weren't the ones making fun of me. They were just like, whatever. He's just a, you know, races, classes, nerd kind of thing. They just left me alone, you know? And, and it was a few of the jocks that kind of like would pick on me. Um, mm. But like you probably get it from from both sides of the aisle, really, or um, growing up, and that really leaves an imprint on you as well. Absolutely, it is impossible to be a female <laughs> in the world today. Like, and there's a million podcasts about this and books about this, and you know, we can talk about this forever. But it, it does mean that you you kind of exist with this constant feeling of failure. You, you just feel like no matter what you choose, if you choose to work, if you choose not to work, if you choose to really work hard on being thin and beautiful, or if you just say, fuck it, I don't care what I look like, you know, it's, you cannot win. And I think that's the trap is like, stop playing the game. You don't have to win. Stop competing. And that's, an, again, I hate to do it, but because I did just listen to the podcast this morning, that's a real variety thing. If you're yeah. competing, you've already lost. Yeah. You shouldn't mm. be competing. You know, and he talks about this in the sense of, you know, fitness professionals uh, marketing their services because it is an incredibly saturated market full of a very wide degree of knowledge and capacity um, on all ends of the spectrum. You can find trainers who are really phenomenal body artists because they they just know so much about how the body moves and works and responds. And it's really, really inspiring. And then you have people who. And I'm not saying this to be mean again, because we, we all pass through these places as coaches, but that they've got their first weekend certification and it glossed over the three planes of motion. And <laughs> yeah. you, know, you kind of have a sense of you should squat, deadlift, push and pull and off we go. And you can pay the same amount for both of those trainers. It's up to you to, to suss out the difference. And I think that's an incredibly, incredibly dangerous area to try to compete in. Yeah. You know, and, and you could say the same about the spectrum of women and beauty. Because you, there's no way as a female, no matter what you happen to look like, that you can possibly compete with the complete opposite of you. You know, I happen to be a brunette, medium, dark skinned, brown haired, five foot four female, is, which is I am the epitome of the average person. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there are beauty extremes all over the world. And there's a ton of really cool stuff on YouTube. You can look up on how beauty has evolved and how it's changed and what was valued and what wasn't and by who it was valued because it's not usually men. It's actually other women mm -hmm. a lot of the time. Cause if you ask a man what they mm -hmm. want in a woman, they're pretty consistent. <laughs> right. 
I'm not that picky, honestly. (laughs) She's going to pay attention to me. And like, if that's going to happen consistently, awesome. I'm in, you know? And then it's women who are like, oh, no, 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 no. Her butt's too big or her boobs are too small or her thighs much or her freaking eyebrows are the wrong shape. Or I mean, (laughs) name it. You can find a video about how you suck. You know, you you absolutely can. So I think you're onto something. Because this is just something men can't possibly understand. No, I can't really fathom it. Like life, you know, it, it just, it doesn't seem like it's fair. And, and we could probably say there's an evolutionary or biological reason for this when it comes to procreation and seeking suitable mates and things like that. Um, because the, the, the flip side of that coin is uh, trying to steer people away from sort of, I don't know if we could call it biological urges or impulses or things and trying to completely erase that from, I don't know, the human existence. I don't think it's going to happen either. So I mean, Sorry, have it, it, in a way like if we if we say something like, like biological impulses and like well we we want to look we want to quote unquote look healthy for reproduction but that's not that th- then why was heroin chic a thing why is still being so freaking underweight that you're probably not even having a period or ovulating being a thing like yeah. it's so ah I, mean, I think I, it's a really interesting question because it's this balance between culture and biology and our, our biology is part of our culture and vice versa. It's a really tangled web. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny because while we were talking about all the things we would have to try to achieve, the thing that kept coming into my mind is, well, I'd much rather be a female bird because then the males have to do all that bullshit. So <laughs> oh, they're very pretty. <laughs> if you look across different species, it's actually quite fascinating how they deal with sexual selection versus you know, actual cultural or societal behaviors, because you can look at other group species and see more nuanced hierarchical behaviors. Um, but humans have definitely got the most complexity that we're capable of understanding. Like, I'm not going to speak for dolphins because they seem pretty smart and we just don't know what the hell they're saying yet. But like yeah. when it comes to, you know, the, the incredibly complex web of biology and biological imperative versus cultural imperative and tradition, um, it doesn't always make sense. It doesn't make sense. Why would heroin chic ever be a thing? Well, okay, let's look at the socioeconomic factors that would drive that look. Why would it be more advantageous to be super thin? Yeah, so that speaks to, I mean, that just highlights my my very ignorant or lack of understanding of, I don't know, fashion and culture and stuff like that. Because I'm like, what is heroin chic? I, I, imagine, <laughs> I imagine it involves K- being like K-Mos. really skinny. Okay. Kate Moss was, if you know Kate Moss, like just being. I've heard the name, but yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you kind of, you want to, you actually were aiming to look like a heroin addict. You were looking to, you were aiming to look okay. as emaciated as possible, as a woman, Ooh, as a woman. Where did that come from? Do you know where that actually came from and why that was something that was sought after? Because I actually, I, I've done Ooh. a little work on this. Oh, you I feel I want to tell you because I'm excited. Now. No, I, I, I really want to know now because I want to punch that person in the face. I want to punch this is, them. This is the thing I love, right? This is why, you know, if you if you ever decide to coach with me, you're never going to get just food. I, I do love to cook and I will happily help you with every recipe on the face of the earth. And I will happily train your physical person. But if you want to geek out on human behavior with me, that's my super favorite thing to do. So here's what actually happened. It was the dawn of the supermodel, right? And the supermodel all of a sudden became one of the highest paid people. If you were female, one of the highest paid jobs you could achieve was supermodel. And what was happening in fashion at the time was everything was extremely boxy. And if you had any curves whatsoever, you made their clothes look like shit. 
And so the more you were a coat hanger, the thinner you were, the more you basically didn't exist in those clothes, the better they could make the clothes look. And so you had this intersection of, <laughs> this is a lot of money I'm gonna pay you to look like this because I'm trying to make this one aesthetic work. And I have these ideas about what clothes should look like. So because I've got this media attention, and because women were at a point in the sort of evolution of women's rights in America, where this was a viable career for a lot of women, and it was seen as high prestige as well, there was a lot of drive behind that. And it drove an entire era of Cosmo magazine and all of these other young teenage magazines, 17. What was the other one? There's like three or four more. And then there was the other niche on the other side with Oxygen, which was a fitness magazine and self and uh oh, women's fitness was it there's a third one that i'm totally spacing right now but i just remember my no soul and fit hers oh god that one that was one of them and if you look at the intersection there i was like you can be just skinny and eat toilet paper because that was actually a trend <laughs> or you can lift weights not too heavy because you don't want to be bulky and not eat and you can be muscular and thin and those two places sort of co-evolved in society Right. And so you could go one way of being the waif like semi useless female who is great for clothing, or you could be a little bit more fit and functional, but not in a threatening way. And both of those were money. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to throw something else out here before the, well, yeah, like before like massive industrial revolution, there were still like things happening, um, you know, in the, in the classical era and like opera and whatnot where it was very like all of the ingenues were all dying of freaking tuberculosis and they were like oh isn't she so beautiful she's white and dying of tuberculosis that's so hot i really like that she's that she's dying and she's so like demure and helpless isn't that hot what the fuck is that by the way liz is an opera singer which is why yes. she knows that. i didn't feel like i should point that out but it yeah. makes me so angry i'm like so the yeah. weaker and more dying i am the hotter i am to you yeah and this transitions into an entirely different genre of podcasts about oppressing a particular population right and and how that's affected through multiple generations and not just like the media in that case but other people were reinforcing this to bring this full circle around to you know both of us losing weight by literally starving our bodies and damaging our health and then being completely praised and held up as examples for it you know, you see this, mm-hmm. just to, yeah. to tie this up real nice for you, this is why the Instagram fitness influencer is so fucking dangerous, yeah. okay? Mm. Because it's a picture, it's a statement they curated of their own. You see none of the backstory of that. You see none of what they had to do to get there or their internal struggles or their family sacrifices that they're making to achieve this. You see none of it. And they do not have the qualifications behind them to be making these recommendations to people from a health. And they're sponsored. They're sponsored. And they're sponsored. (laughs) So again, money is driving this aesthetic. So So it's all just capitalism. I I now then have another can of worms. Um, I I wish I had the sound effect. Like, what's that sound? Oh, that's a can of worms (laughs) you're opening here. Um, (laughs) That's that's the body positivity and health at every size, because I think that was an evolution of some of these other extremes where it's, it's, we've recognized that, we're holding up something that's impossible and we're now rebelling against these impossible standards. And I think there's pendulum swing, right? I talk about this pendulum swing on a personal level all the time, but we do it on a society level too. And history repeats. So you can, again, sorry, I always tie it back together to like history and ecology because we're just not that exciting and innovative as humans. Like we just have patterns that we repeat. And this is one of them. 
right? It's this, it was extremely, extremely controlled and we had very rigid social rules and we're going through a period now where we're, che- we're questioning all of them and we're chucking them all in the fire and seeing what comes out the other side. And I think Hayes is a great example of that. As health at every size for those yeah, who yeah. weren't putting that together. Sorry. Yeah. So, because I think there's, there's, it's a double-edged sword. Because oh, we can say, worms that you're going to open. Yeah. Oh, like I got the little thing, like, yeah, right. Because <laughs> there is something to be said for not placing so much value on your size and not, not necessarily saying that you can't participate in this element of society because of your size and so on. So maybe doing away with some of that discrimination, but the flip side of it is this can also push people to like really extreme hedonistic behaviors that are destructive and unhealthy and unhelpful. And it's almost like the, I don't know if it's infantilizing essentially, I just want to degenerate into only pleasure and you, how dare you say anything against me while I'm engaging this really highly destructive pattern of eating, but it's, it's a real fuck you. It's a real fuck you to everything. I think it's, it is just such, I think it's really this backlash to like, fuck you. You've been telling me this for so long. I'm right. going to, I'm going to, I'm going to show you. All I can think you of know? is the BC boy song. You got to fight for your right to party, which my <laughs> stepbrother used to blast like, endlessly because he was such a rebel and i think that this is a part of every generation right we rebel against whatever we feel the biggest depression of our previous generation was and so that's Mm. definitely what you're seeing here because a huge huge percentage of the population is overweight or obese and even those categories have become problematic um, to talk about because it's it's not about shame and i think that's the problem and liz's experience at the doctor whether she was underweight or overweight was they gave me they gave me like when I lost, like when I had my, my physical, like a couple of years ago or something, they gave me a thing. And I told you this, Chris, and I like, I lost my shit and I still am so upset. They, they categorized me and they're like obesity level three or something. And I was like, in my head, I'm like, am I on my 600 pound life? Can I, I don't, I don't like, it's, it sounded like the most horrible thing. It just sounded like, am I going to drop dead? Mm-hmm. Like, what hmm. what wow. and it was right. so painful and i'm like i'm like fuck you this idea that like shaming people into change isn't isn't effective yeah. and we That's know that. Work. we know that and i think that it's like okay health at every size yes you have to be comfortable now going back to this buddhist guy that was talking like you are living now you only get now you don't live in the past or the future now is where you are and being happy and content and okay with where you are now is going to lead you to better decisions. And so shame has no place here, right? But the tools we've used in society for so long revolve around shaming people into behavior, mm-hmm. especially in America, right? BMI. This is definitely an issue in other Anglo-Saxon or Anglo, Anglophone cultures as well. But like in America, particularly, you should be ashamed of your struggles. You should never be unhappy. If you're unhappy, it's your fault. Um, we're never looking at the system as a whole as to why we might be unhappy. And, you know, as somebody who did leave America, and this is going to make me super unpopular with anybody who's American <laughs> listening to this, but I did leave America because it didn't feel that that was fair because I felt like there were systemic things I couldn't overcome and they weren't my fault, which I guess made me an incredibly arrogant 20 year old because I didn't just decide it was all my fault. I thought, no, this isn't how I think people should be treated. And I think that they're That's so mature. This. That's so mature. I was like, like to be able to be like that, you know, this is also a societal thing, a societal construct. But I've been studying anthropology. It's not like I came up with that shit on my own. I had an entire college professor team plugging this crap in my brain. And I came out looking around at, like I said, at the be, I think it was before we started 
recording, it's like you start out in anthropology assessing other people's cultures and their belief systems and frameworks and how they make decisions and why there are the influences that there are. And you look at all these different practices around the world, but then they blow your mind with the fact that like you have those too, and you're judging all of these other cultures through your own lens. And then your mind fucking explodes and you have an existential crisis. And then you come back from that and you realize, well, but now I have these tools to be able to assess the decision-making that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I may not get it right at the moment because now it's really confusing. Like, am I making that decision because it's a me decision? Am I making that decision because it's a, how my culture views this decision? Am I making this decision because like my family, it only feels this way, it, it really forces you into this deep questioning place of like, mm. who the hell am I? And how does that interact with everybody else? Mm. So then, yeah. If we, if we bring, bring it back, cause that's, that's a really good, um, like a really big deep dive into this and maybe why this is occurring. Is there a place where we can acknowledge that obesity is a health problem that we, we probably shouldn't ignore? even though we're, we're, we've probably been for, for decades or even centuries going about it the wrong way, um, how do we have that discussion about something that we probably shouldn't ignore? Because in the 21st century, I think we've created the perfect world for making us obese because we have, we have manufactured foods that are, that are geared to basically be addictive and uh, very difficult to regulate. We have sedentary convenience. We could accomplish almost everything other than getting off our couch to open the door for like, you know, skip the dishes or whatever at the touch of a button. So we've engineered the perfect world to make us obese and lazy. So, which I would argue makes us extremely successful animals because again, looking across species, (laughs) what other animal has a luxury of turning on the television and just doing literally nothing for a few hours? None. Like none, they're all trying to make sure their houses don't blow down or that something doesn't eat them or that and instead of celebrating, babies aren't running off a cliff or whatever. They're busy. They don't have free time and maybe lions because they do a lot of sleeping. But like other than that, this is, I think this is the thing. And it comes back to how do we have this conversation is it comes back to not shaming the individual, not putting all the onus of responsibility on the individual. You know, I don't care how great you are at restricting your food. If the environment that you live is constantly putting food in front of your face, you will not forever say no. And it was yes. one of the most eye-opening things when I lived abroad was like, I can remember in college, I would wake up, eat breakfast, and then a friend would call me and be like, hey, you want to go get some brunch? I'd be like, yeah, let's go get brunch. It's like, I'm just able, who cares? Because brunch is awesome and I'm going to go do that. And then I went to Europe, to Europe and it went from basically food at any time at all times, because I can to why are you eating at not a mealtime? Like you want to get shamed about your food behavior, go live in France for a while. They will, they right. will absolutely. But you can have all the cigarettes that you, all the cigarettes you want, <laughs> but it was, you know, breakfast was at this time. And literally the whole society was structured this way. It was in environmentally disincentivized for you to eat outside of mealtimes. Restaurants are not open until noon. And when mm-hmm. restaurants open, supermarkets close. They close from 12 to two. They're they're not open. You cannot go buy food. Same in Italy. Yeah. Same in Italy. Same in Germany. They're closed on Sundays. You cannot go buy food on Sundays. I can actually really remember in France one morning, it was like Saturday at 11 o'clock and we woke up late and it was like, oh my God, if we don't get milk right now. And I went, I put on my big European trench coat because it was winter. And I went to the supermarket in my pajamas and bought milk out of like panic. Absolute panic. (laughs) I wasn't going to be able to buy milk for the next two days. And it makes you really, again, 
look at this framework we've created. We've created a framework that allows this to happen, that incentivizes the individual to do it. And then we put out marketing that shames them for it and tells them that it can just freeze their fat off or take this pill or buy a waist trainer and solve their problems. But what we're not doing is incentivizing healthful behavior. Absolutely. And uh, I know, I know we're, we're running out of time here. So clearly we're going to have to extend this discussion into, into like as another, <laughs> as, as usual, <laughs> into another discussion, but um, hel- helping people change their behavior because um, another kind of worms that we probably don't have a lot of time to dive into right now is the, the current sort of pandemic and things like that. And, and, you know, for example, treating a vaccine, like it's going to be the magic cure. I'm like, well, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's a tool. It is not the only tool. And part of the reason we're experiencing this is because of so many other things that have contributed to our state of health. And it's happening, you're right, at a societal and a cultural level. And I don't know how to, I don't know how as an individual to like fight back against that, really. Mm. There was a CEO that came out. I think it was, he was a, uh, it it wasn't a fast food chain, but he was a restaurant chain. And I think he was like a salad-y kind of restaurant chain. And he came out and said something along the lines of, 78% 78% of the COVID patients were obese and he got absolutely annihilated for saying that. And I thought that was really interesting because it's like, he wasn't coming out and saying you got COVID and died because you're fat. He was saying, Hey, there's a correlation here that maybe we need to pay attention to. Yeah. And that's important. And that taking care of our health is important, but that's not how exactly how he framed it. And in the current political climate and the current media climate, there was no room for that. And it makes it very scary to say the things that you just said, which I, I personally also agree with. It's like you can, both of these things can exist at the same time. You can be okay in yourself now and you can also wish to change and you can also wish to get healthier. And not, none of those things, neither of those things makes you a good or a bad person. Right. These things aren't mutually exclusive. Right. So I think it's really, really a tricky, tricky time to be talking about this. And I love that we're doing it. I'm like, yay. This okay. just I, I still list? feel a sense of, I still uh, feel a sense of, <laughs> so I feel shame for not being a certain weight, for being more than that weight. And then I feel shame for wanting to lose weight. Like I'm a traitor. I'm a traitor to the movement, aren't I? So I know we don't have a lot of time, but I just, again, I'm, I'm going to keep banging on the same banjo, but like, if we look at what the purpose of shame is, as a human animal, why do we have shame? What's it designed to do for us? Because everything we feel and have and experience is designed to drive some kind of behavior, right? So why do we have shame? Why do we have shame? I get why we have guilt to keep us from doing the, uh, the bad thing again, but shame is very different than guilt. But would you feel ashamed if you were absolutely alone on an island? Would you feel shame? Like, what would you feel ashamed of? Would you walk around naked on a completely deserted island? Hell yeah. I do that anywhere. I don't care. Would you walk out to the supermarket completely naked? No, I don't want people to judge me. (laughs) Dang. So shame (laughs) is driven by our concern for fitting into a, a certain social paradigm right? Because we are a group animal. We are not designed to live and function on our own, or we wouldn't give any fucks about going naked to the supermarket, right? You would just do it because you don't care what the other lions think about you at the supermarket. Who cares? But you do care. And that's where shame comes from. And so the difficulty is balancing your concern over what the other members of your group or tribe or herd or whatever, you know, collective noun you want to use, 
are going to think of you and your behavior and how that's going to affect your access to resources. Right. If because if you look at it from a weight loss perspective, right, if you're overweight in the current society, you are less sexually desirable, desirable, and that affects your access to resources. And in the real world, that actually even affects your access to employment. It affects your access to food, to plane tickets, to hotel stays, to a thousand different things. And so that shame is socially reinforced outside of yourself, which is why I say, again, this is a systems problem, not an individual problem. Yeah. And also like they're, they're, everyone's coming at it. Like it's okay to shame you about your weight and stuff because you can change that. You can't shame someone about like their skin color, but you can shame them about their weight because it's up to them and it's their fault. To a degree it is. But again, if we look at precision nutrition and what they teach about nutrition and how to effectively change, help people change their nutrition, they talk about systems, structure, and scheduling. Okay. And we we always talk to our clients about the individual systems that they create for themselves. But I also talk to my clients about what societal system are you living in? What bigger Mm -hmm. systems are affecting your ability to affect change on these things? Because Mm -hmm. if I can't fundamentally change the fact that there are fast food restaurants at every single corner on my way to work, I can't not see them. I literally like that's out of my control. So what can I do? Well, how can I affect my environment? I can go down a different road. I can drive a different way to work. I can tell my boss I'm never coming to work again and drive the road. I, you know, I can develop mechanisms to talk myself out of going to that place, but I can't make those fast food restaurants disappear. That's not under my control. And I think that's a really, really critical part of the obesity epidemic that we're facing today. Yeah. We're not yeah. regulating this well. Yeah. And that, that'll make a great next episode is tackling this at a societal and cultural level. What sort of things can we shout for? So to tie everything up in a, in a pretty little bow, we started out saying you're, you're going to be fat no matter what you do. Um, and talk about everything kind of sucks about the weight loss industry. And we skipped over a lot of the weight loss industry because we really got into human behavior and just kind of explaining, which I think is super helpful, explaining why we do what we do, what drives us here. And also the human experience. So people can know like, one, you're not alone in this, but two, like, this is actually, not only are you not alone, this is a normal thing to experience. And three, you can be on your journey. Your journey is not complete. Um, That's okay. My journey isn't complete. Chris, your journey is not complete. Liz, your journey is not complete, but we keep taking forward steps anyways. So what is one, one soundbite that you'd like to leave listeners with before we tell them where to find you? Ooh. Well, you stumped us both. <laughs> <laughs> I know to try I to condense. Really, all she these... looked at me. We were I like, wanted to yeah. just be all like, I want to be like, fuck the system. We're both, we're both Virgos. <laughs> we're both Virgos. And we're like, this has to be the perfect soundbite. It has to be perfect. If it's not perfect, it is a failure. I'm a failure. <laughs> try, try to condense all that we've discussed oh, into a oh. soundbite. Yeah. <laughs> you're all made of stardust, and you're beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even uh, if you're fat stardust. <laughs> fat stardust that's a new name of this episode <laughs> you're all beautiful fat stardust, all beautiful fat stardust. Uh, yeah look we're, we're all imperfectly human and struggling and trying to figure this out we don't have all the answers but we're, we're we're struggling for the answers and we're struggling to be positive agents of change which is why we're having these conversations yeah. so Chris and Liz, um, you've been absolutely phenomenal. Uh, we're definitely going to continue this conversation because it's it's much needed. We need to shout louder in this industry. Where where do they find you? 
So we actually have a podcast as well. It's called Deconstructing Health and Fitness. It's on every major podcast outlet out there. Um, So please like, subscribe, download, do all the clicky button things so that our voices start getting louder. Um, And we're really looking forward to uh, getting more presence on social media, even though it's, you know, as we've previously stated, not maybe our favorite thing, but it's the weapon we have at the moment. So Um, so we'd love to host like a live Facebook group where you can come in and answer questions and ask questions and, you know, go on really social tangents with us. Um, But yeah, that's the best place to find us. I do coach still. Um, I have a couple of spots, but I don't take on a lot of one-on-one clients anymore. Uh, If you would like to check out my website, you can. It's www.brazenfit4life.com. And I'll give you a lot more of my backstory as well. And Liz has her own Instagram following her own journey. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very much, it's very much uh, because, you know, my coaching with Chris, it's, you know, very much um, my journey with her umbrella. Awesome. That was weird. Don't use that. Cut that. So you're, <laughs> no, we're, this is not, this is unfiltered. There's this no is us, human and imperfect. <laughs> and uh, so what, what's your Instagram handle? Uh, what, what umbrella it's do you a, hide under on Instagram? Brazen, brazenly fit Liz, because nice. you know, Chris is brazen. Fit. I want to give a nod to her. Um, and you know what? I am brazen. I'm so brazen just, as hell. <laughs> I want to kind of say, cause I actually, you know, have, had many questions about why I've tamed my business this, right? Because I think as a woman, it's a particularly bold move to use something like brazen. It's usually a term that's used to attack women. Um, And I I specifically picked it because I want to hold it up as a quality. It's a feature, not a bug. Um, And it means to be bold. It doesn't necessarily mean to be offensive, right? And I think that that's the big misconception here is that bold women are offensive. Women with voices are offensive. And I'm doing everything I can, not just through my business name, but through the podcast and working with Liz and all of my other clients to say, no, we have voices and we deserve to be heard. And they're not offensive because they're loud. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Or big. So loud, man. Don't go to a quiet <laughs> concert. They suck. So, <laughs> hey, okay, I love classical music and a good, like, a nice, like, Chopin. Oh, just gonna say it. Cut All that right. too. That was so weird. I just want to say thanks so much to John for having us on. This was so much fun, and I look forward to doing many, many more deep dives on whatever random stuff we come up with. Because although we took fantastic notes, we totally yeah. don't understand it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so that happens with every conversation that we have. It so. does. Thank you, Chris and Liz, for being here. Uh, I'm Coach John of Wellness Unplugged. Do all the clicky things, to quote Chris. I think all the clicky things are like, you know, subscribe. Leave me a raving review on iTunes so we can catapult this to the top of the charts in record fashion. Um, All of my six or eight listeners so far. Um, (laughs) Continue to be awesome. Continue to fight the good fight. Uh, Be raw, be real, be human, and be awesome. Awesome. Thanks for listening to Wellness Unplugged, where we disconnect the fake glitz of social media and get real about creating that transformation you've been wanting for far too long. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show now so you're first to hear new episodes with more motivating conversations with health experts to help you take the next step on your journey of transformation. If you can't wait until then, sign up for Coach John's free Crush Your Cravings Guide to reduce nighttime snacking, eating because you're bored, and emotional eating. 
Get it now at freedomnutrition.rocks slash crush your cravings.